Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50 luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. Hello and welcome back to Snowcast. I'm John Snow and today I'm joined by the British journalist, author and broadcaster Tim Marshall. Tim has been reporting for more than 30 years and is an authority on foreign affairs and space, which we discuss today. He's worked for the BBC, IRN, LBC and Sky News, where he was their diplomatic editor. During his career, Tim has reported from and covered conflicts in 40 countries, including Croatia, Bosnia, Macedonia, Iraq, Afghanistan, and Syria. He's also a best-selling author and the founder and editor of current affairs website, thewhatandthewhy.com. I sat down with Tim to talk about his fascinating career and his new book, The Future of Geography, which looks at how power and politics in space will change our world. I hope you'll enjoy it. Tim Marshall, you're clearly very bright, but you left school at 16. Do you think you were let down by the educational system, or was it just not the right time for you to flourish? The first person to ever to say that to me. <laughs> Thank you, John. Um, I, I've asked myself the same question. I was actually invited to leave. They suggested it would be a good idea both for me and the school if I wasn't to come back. Was it as soft a landing as that, or was it actually very abrupt and brutal? Uh, it was coming. Uh, sorry, I, I've prevaricated because I don't really know the answer because I do bear some personal responsibility for my behaviour. My behaviour was not good. Now, you could blame the system and the school for not making subjects interesting, because I have a theory that nearly everything is interesting. But I was a disruptive element in the class, it, that wouldn't be fair on the other 33, 34 people in the class. So perhaps remove me to the remedial class, which is what happened in many of my classes. So, yes, poss possibly there's a little bit of, can't we, we, we can see this kid's bright. Forgive me, yes, thank you. I, you know, I wasn't stupid. But I, I do have to bear some responsibility for myself. But what was it 
about the other people in the class or was it all about you? It was about being thoroughly bored. bored. <laughs> just just yeah. so bored with biology and and soil samples and uh, and the only one I the only two subjects that I would sort of be enraptured not enraptured interested in English and history. So, you know, there was an early pointer there perhaps. How old were you uh, when you joined the Air Force and how did four years service shape young Tim Marshall? I would say it would be positive. Um, it was about a year later when I was 17. Uh, I was a painter and decorator and I got laid off and I was looking around what to do. And um, I tried all three services and what, the Navy said you can be a, shore, a shoreman in a warehouse. What's the point of that? <laughs> Army said, yeah, you'll be battering down the shank hill in no time at all. Mm, not sure about that. And then the Air Force said you could be a telegraphist. What's that? A radio operator. Well, we've all seen that in the films. That'll do me. So four years, it, it got me out of Leeds, John. Uh, I love Leeds. Um, go back every second Saturday. But at the time, it was not a good place for me to be. So it got me out of Leeds. It gave me a discipline and a structure that perhaps I didn't have and needed. So I, th I think those were four years well spent. I ended up buying myself out. Because then, as you, you know, I'm getting slightly older, I'm thinking there's a whole world out there and I want to go and explore it even more. You went back, or you go back, a couple of times a month. Yeah. Is that to watch the football? Yeah, only, I mean, my family's moved away. Um, yeah, I mean, I'm a Leeds United fan, which is, as you know, short for fanatic. I'm home season ticket holder, away season ticket holder. It's just one of the passions of my life. Um, I sometimes say I'm not really a football fan, I'm a Leeds fan. But it's a, it's a cultural thing, it's a hobby. But it's, it's just where I everything else in your life is removed and there's just you, the guys, the football, and it's fun. It's biological. Mm. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> well, it's infectious. Like me, your first job in journalism yeah. was at LBC, London Broadcasting, as it was called in the beginning. Uh, did you learn on the job? Mm. What, and, and what was the best advice you got there? I definitely learned on the job because I, I had no idea what I was doing. Um, I, I was brought in just on for three days uh, as some basic research in what was called news information. And Vivian, who ran that department, you know, clearly thought, OK, you know, there's something we can mould here. And it, it turned into a, a career. I think I learned fairly on the value of being on time. Do not be late. It doesn't matter if you've got a microphone in front of you. Definitely don't be late because we don't like silence on the radio. And it doesn't matter where you are. Don't be late. Don't be rude to other people by being late and also work hard. That, those two things don't mean you will be successful, but it's a pretty good foundation. And, and it, I was taught that fairly early on. I was a founder member of LBC yes. and, and I loved it. I mean, but I wondered how it was when you got there. Was, was it very established? And no, sorted? no, it was still. It's funny. I went on to work for Sky News uh, in the first year they launched. There are a few similarities. I mean, not quite as outsider uh, in their heads LBC but LBC then was new vibrant a uh, startup if you like and startups are always fun and it was an outsider and it did have Radio 4's Today program in its sites and things like that so it was it was very exciting it was a fantastic eclectic mix of mad Australians and chances like myself and properly educated university types and it was this great mishmash which gave it a real character but absolutely, absolutely learnt it. But it's it's a you know it's good to learn from your mistakes. And um, well, if you don't, you're found out. And if you do, onwards. 
What was nice was you could never guarantee that number of people were actually listening to LBC. So if you did screw up. <laughs> <laughs> but there was, a, there was a time, John, almost certainly when you were there, when it was it was rivaling for numbers the Today programme at Radio in, really? in in London. Really? You know, if you looked at the L, the Radio Four London listenership and the LBC London listenership, possibly different demographics, I don't know, but it, it was it was close to matching them. How much competition was there for foreign assignments in LBC and Sky for that matter? Uh, LBC for me, none, because there was not a chance in hell I was even basically going out of the front door, never mind abroad. But, but well, why? Why? Well, I wasn't experienced enough. I mean, you do have to know what you're about when you go to foreign climes because you can see an idiot abroad a mile away. I know I, I wasn't experienced enough, but by the time I reached Sky, I basically started again as sort of junior. And after a couple of years, the foreigns began to arrive and their competition was incredibly stiff. I mean, there is something that is regarded as glamorous about the foreign assignments. I mean, you know from experience, often they're not. It's just incredibly hard work with 30 pieces of kit you have to take with you in those days. But there were some very talented people, a great generation of reporters that, that came through, and it was incredibly competitive, mostly in a good way. And then I reckon, I suppose by the time you get to the Bosnian War, I'm just approaching that level of experience where, okay, we, you know, we can stop holding your hand. I remember one, one fellow reporter saying to me, how come you're always going to Bosnia? Uh, I said, right, who's the uh, United Nations Secretary General? <laughs> he said, I don't need to know who the UN Secretary General is to go to Bosnia. I said, well, he's there at the moment. You know, so there were certain people that ruled themselves out. There was a lot of people that ruled themselves in, and there was a, a huge amount of competition. But once you get the experience and have proved you can handle it, and hopefully you're not too gung-ho, because that, that is a negative, uh, yeah, you get more and more, and I ended up... Um, I ended up after 9-11, to be honest. You know, I did nothing but conflict for about the best part of 10 years. Looking back, is there any one story or one interview that stands out for you? The fall of the S Saddam Hussein, I, I was in Kabbalah, the, the Shia stronghold city, a few days later, and I saw the Shia demonstrating, as they hadn't been allowed to for 30 years, in the Shia manner of worship, and there was a million people on the streets, and I knew at that point that Iran was entering back onto the world stage in a really big way, and that, that had a big impression on me. But probably I, I was in Kosovo when NATO came forward, and we'd gone down to meet the NATO troops. That was a big story. Interviews, Benazir Bhutto, I got the last interview she gave before she went back to India. Uh, it was in Dubai, and then I flew in on the plane with her. And I remember asking her, hopefully in not such a clumsy way, aren't you frightened of getting shot or being assassinated? And there was something in the way she answered that made me think she knows there's a very good chance she's not going to make it. And, you know, as you know, of course, she was assassinated. And there was something in the air in the interview uh, that, it, you know, I remember waking up, it was Boxing Day a few years later, and there she was blown up, and I, it wasn't a surprise. Was it a wrench to leave conflict reporting behind or does the job take too much of a toll i think you know the answer to the second of those um it wasn't a wrench at all i made a conscious decision my friend mickey had been shot in and killed in in cairo a couple of years prior to me making that decision i'd had a couple of two near misses in syria here's the real reason though all that comes together with i realized 
I wouldn't say I was becoming less, uh, not emotional, yeah, less emotional, less caring. But I kept thinking to myself, I've seen this film before. And that's not a good emotion to have when you're dealing with people who's obviously mostly have seen conflict for the first time and it's happening to them. And if you're thinking, oh, I've seen all this before, I don't think that's, you're not going to give your best. So it was, it was time to quit. And no, I don't miss it at all. I don't regret ever doing it. Don't miss it at all. So how many years was it? Well, I was in Bosnia in 94, 95, and um, Macedonia, and Kosovo, and Afghanistan, and Iraq, and Gaza, and Lebanon, and Syria, and Libya. So, you know, it was the best part of 20 years. I mean, I wasn't, I'd never called myself a war reporter. I was a general foreign news correspondent mm. who did a lot of conflicts. So, yeah, I mean, 20 years, um, you get tired. <laughs> yes, I know the feeling. Yeah. <laughs> Your first bestseller was concerned with geopolitics. Can you tell me what geopolitics is, how it helps our understanding of international relations? I can give you my definition of it because there are several. But geopolitics, many people just think it's interchangeable with international relations. I don't think it is. It's a way of looking at international relations where... If you take a given subject, Ukraine, Russia, you start with the geography of the situation. Um, you look at the terrain, the mountains, the rivers, the seas, the trade routes, the resources. You layer on the history of what has happened in that terrain. You layer on that the politics of what has happened. But because you've got that underpinning of geography, it gives you a way of looking at it. Um, I mean, military people do this a lot, of course. So I, I think it's helped me enormously. Um, and I think it's a very good way of explaining why things happen. And I'm not a determinist. I'm not a, you know, I don't think it's the, the, the everything is completely baked in. But I think some things are baked in through geography. And when you understand that, it's just, you've got more of the picture. But describe for us going to somewhere you'd never been, to an event you'd never seen. How did you deal with it? All right, Syria is a good example. Uh, I mean, I'd been once, but only to do a political report on the Assad regime before the, the, mm. the war broke out. Going back to cover the war, I made sure I studied the, the geography of the country as well as obviously the history and the current relations. Now, when it was being reported that Assad had lost half of the country, I was reporting he'd lost half of the sand. Because when you know the topography mm. and you know where the cities are, and they're in a straight line with the, the one motorway that's in the country, the only one which links all the major five cities in a straight line from top to bottom, and he hadn't lost that. So he hadn't lost half the country in another way of looking at it. So that's an example of how it gives you a, a better understanding. And if you go to Ukraine and you drive across the flatlands, you, you are reminded of that that's the route that people have taken into Russia and that's why Russia gets nervous. It doesn't justify what they're doing, but it partially explains it. Your new book looks beyond Earth's geography. Did the 1969 moon landing have a big impact on 10-year-old Tim? 10-year-old <laughs> Tim. Uh, yeah, I remember watching it and it was, you know, amazing. I mean, 10, you can't put it in its historical context of 12,000 years of, you know, human history. You know, I was just aware that this was wow. And I, I've always been interested in, in, in space, in the romantic side of it, you know, in the, the distances and the mind-melting stuff about it. Uh, I've, I've always liked sci-fi, whether it's kitsch 
like Star Trek or you know um, some of the deeper stuff. Um, so uh, I, I was off to a standing, a, a, a running start when writing the book because I had a real passion for the subject. But all I've done, John, is taken that geopolitics and applied it to space. You know, th there is a geography to space. There are resources on sp in space. There's places you don't want to be, places you do want to be, and there's competition and there's politics. So it's it's called astropolitics, and essentially the book. It, um, Future of Geography is about astropolitics. You've said that scientists and astronauts know they're standing on the shoulders of the giants. Who's your favourite giant from space history? <laughs> I'm tempted to say Gagarin, Yuri Gagarin, the Russian, mm. because you're, mm. the, you're the first person to break that atmosphere. And, and yet he's probably less known outside of Russia than is Neil Armstrong, the first person to walk on the moon. But... A real giant for me is Konstantin Tsiolkovsky, mm -hmm. uh, Russian in the 1890s. What was it that was so special about it? Because he is a giant in that, firstly, he, he, he came up with the escape velocity ratio. How fast do you need to go vertically for how long with how much fuel to break the atmosphere? And he did it. Uh, in the 1890s, at the same time he was designing spaceships with airlocks that could dock with each other. And this is a decade before the Wright brothers have flown the first, the first plane. So without escape velocity, we, we wouldn't have done it. And the guy was just uh, a genius. He's known as the father of, of Russian rocketry. And he had a great quote, uh, mankind was born in the cradle but cannot stay in the cradle forever. He's just, he is a giant. Without these scientific giants, the heroes, the ones that strap themselves to the top of a massive bomb and, and launch themselves into space, they don't do what they do. You say he's a space giant, but he was behind an iron curtain. Yeah. How did you learn what his great contribution was? I just came across an article in, in the research about escape velocity, and then just from there it just opened up. This guy has a museum to him in Russia. He's a, a well-known name in Russia. Um, all his belongings are on display, his, his works. I mean, the communists, first of all, try to suppress him and then use him for, 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 for propaganda as they realised he would help them in rocketry to match their competitors. But I, I really think he is, apart from in Russia and in niche circles, he's just unknown, and I just think that he's a giant of, of rocketry and space travel. It's been half a century since man last set foot on the moon. December 1972. Mm. Is the moon now back at the top of the agenda? Space is back at the top of the agenda, and the moon very much part of it. And this is the difference between the 60s and 70s, when I would argue it was mostly ideological, proving which system was better. This time it's commercial and military, and the private enterprise is front and centre, both in China and in America, and in other countries. SpaceX and Blue Horizon companies like that. So this time you've got the satellite belt where you can make profits and is integral to both warfare, modern warfare, and our world economy. And then you've got the moon where they have discovered huge reserves of the very resources we need for 21st century technology, lithium, silicon, uh, helium. Extractable? Well, that's the economic model that's uncertain. They know where it is. They can develop the machines to get it. They can get there. The modelling of extracting it and bringing it back, that's uncertain. But 
there's not been a country or a major company that when it sees this says to itself, we'll just let the competition go and we won't bother. So everybody's going. The Russians are going. Chinese, they intend to have a space, a moon station by 2028. The Americans intend to walk on the moon again 2026 and have a base later. Japanese going hell for leather on the mining equipment that's going to be required. And then the very positive, even more positive aspects are the helium-3, that if we can crack nuclear fusion, would give unlimited radiation-free nuclear power for Earth for thousands of years. And just this week, a company that has British involvement uh, has sent the first package of solar rays down to Earth. Just a very, very small packet of, of, of power to prove it can be done with the idea in a few years to have fields of solar panels up there deflecting solar power to Earth 24-7. There's no night and day up there. Which, are, you know, these are really potential positives for combating climate change. So the space race in terms of exploitation is back on track. Very much. Uh, and it is the resources of the two metals I've mentioned and many, many others, the helium, the water ice, tens of millions of gallons of it are on the, in the south pole of the moon. And then there's, there is this military aspect to it. I mean, the satellites are becoming more important. The Russia-Ukraine war has again shown how modern warfare is fought via space. And the technology that, that, that is um, going with it is growing, and there's the growing militarization of space. And it, it's the same as with the massive companies. They can't afford not to be there. The leading countries now militarily fear they cannot afford not to be there. You're listening to Snowcast with me, John Snow, and we'll be right back after this. 
it's a little like sovereignty under another guise. But that concept, John, of no sovereignty in space is fraying. And behind it, you can sneak in this language about... And I understand it. If you spent billions getting there, you're, you don't really want someone else saying, I'll have that, thank you. But on the other hand, by what right and law do you say that? So that there is this there's this fraying of the legal the, the legal guidelines. They're, they're really fraying because they're 60 years behind the technology. But it's so interesting because the original space race was between nations and now mm. it seems to be between people with very big egos. Well, we know the two big names, but there's more than 100 Chinese startup space companies. Um, the French and the Italians have massive, hugely profitable companies. They just don't get quite the publicity because, you know, they're not Elon Musk. But yes, private enterprise and egos are a big part of it. But if you took those two out, although Musk actually is quite a revolutionary, he has revolutionized space travel with the reusable rockets. If you take those out, th there are huge companies in Japan, big companies in Britain, that are that are part of this commercialization and this new drive. So yes, there's a there's a an ego side to it, but it's it's not the biggest thing about it. Well, a man with one of the biggest egos on earth, Donald Trump, describes space as the world's newest warfighting domain. Is this new race about dominance, not exploitation, or has it always been this way? I think it's always been this way. What, right from those very early eyes? We were so innocent. Well, there's a book by um, Professor Bledlow, who's written a, a book about this called uh, Original Sin, saying it, it was baked in quite early, the militarization side of it. I, I'm not complacent, but sanguine, if that's possible, because there's never been technology that doesn't then have a military, or rarely doesn't have a military aspect to it, whether it's ships, warships, planes, warplanes. It is inevitable. It's inevitable if there are resources, we will go after them. It's inevitable that if one nation is in space with something military, other nations will. That has been the pattern of history forever. So, so it, it is inevitable. I just think it's much more concentrated now because, because of the technology. You know, there's more than 8,000 satellites up there now. In the original space race, there was a handful. Um, and, and they weren't there for really commercial purposes. Now they are. You know, there's thousands of them for commercial purposes and for military purposes. So, in a sense, satellite warfare, what sort of damage could a rogue state yeah. activate? And non-rogue. Um, okay, two examples. Russia last year knocked out some of the base stations which knocked out the internet in Ukraine for large parts of Ukraine. Musk flew in some of his satellite dish receivers and got it back up and running. And Russia at that point began to dazzle some of his satellites, which you can do with lasers from Earth, but they have them in their military vehicles that aim them at the satellites and they can dazzle them. And that's been going on ever since. Two is that four countries have already tested a ballistic missile strike on a satellite. India, China, Russia, USA have launched ballistic missiles from Earth and hit one of their own satellites. So we can do it. So if they can do it, someone, you said rogue state, North Korea, could blow up, theoretically, several satellites, causing a cascade of debris, 
which hits other satellites, that if they go dark, the world economy plunges. So there are these new dangers um, in this new technology. In which case, I mean, kind of what rules are there to protect us <laughs> from the ambitions of these big players? I mean, do we Limited. have robust international no. space laws? No. We have outdated space laws, which um, you and whose army is going to enforce. We have no laws, for example, how close one satellite can get to another. And now we have satellites with grappling arms to clear space debris, but that means they could clear my satellite, and my mm. satellite has my nuclear early warning system in it. So we need new laws for the new age. We have a framework, the Outer Space Treaty 1967. You could use it as a template, but if you copy and paste it, you're not doing any good. We've got to update the laws. Um, at the moment, it's the Wild West. At the moment, it's a free-for-all. Uh, at the moment, it's blocks going up separately, the Artemis American-led block, the Chinese, Russia, and perhaps others. And uh, the sooner they get around the table, the better, but I don't foresee that for a few years yet. In the meantime, we're pretty naked. Yeah, I, I think so. Um, I mean, you, you mentioned Trump uh, talking about space being a war-fighting domain. That is a mantra of NATO now. It changed its language last year, and it changed the language of Article 5 to attacks from, to, and within space. Now, as far as we know, nobody's got a weapon in space that can fire a weapon. But the Americans have recently developed lasers which they can fire for about a kilometer range and they can hit drones. So it's a lot cheaper to use a dollar's worth of electricity to take down a drone than a 250,000 pound missile to take down a drone. So the temptation to take that laser and stick it on a satellite will be immense. Nobody's done it. But the sooner we get a treaty that everyone agrees they won't do it, the better. How do you negotiate international agreements when the space race is dominated mm -hmm. by two power blocks who won't cooperate? Does the UN have any teeth here? Influence. I don't know about teeth. Because you, mm. wouldn't, you wouldn't do it in the Security Council, because it's moribund. I think the real way to do it is that the two main players get around the table and take others with them. At the moment, that is not going to happen. Where the UN could play a role is that through the, G the General Assembly. You know, if you did get you know, huge majorities. And this is something that does affect all of humanity. I mean, I mean the Af there's 80 countries in space now. Lots of the African countries are in space using it for agriculture and knitting the African economy together. Economies together, I should say. So if you could get a general assembly to try to assemble a new set of guidelines, and that puts pressure on the main protagonists to, to follow those guidelines. But I'm afraid when you're in the middle of the Klondike gold rush, you don't usually stop until the dust has settled, or the coal dust has settled a bit. The International Space Station will be decommissioned in mm. 2031. Do you think we'll ever see its like again? Are you optimistic about future cooperation? I'm optimistic about most things. <laughs> uh, no, generally. Um, no, I've noticed, you know, yes. You know, we're not, um, you know, every generation thinks the sky is falling and it's still there. Yeah, th so the International Space Station is, was, is an amazing, amazing thing with the different modules built by different countries and the different nations living up there. And it's being decommissioned. Okay. The Chinese have got one, and they, they, it will be the only one. But the, Amer the Artemis Accords are going to build a new one, they hope, by about 20, well, probably about 2030, given HS2's example. But it won't be like the ISS, because the ISS has Russia involved and, and others, whereas the Artemis Accords will only be the grouping of like-minded countries. So for the foreseeable future, there are going to be there is going to be a form of International Space Station, but it's not going to be one that brings the world together. It's going to be one that brings one of the blocks together. 
the UK is still a member of the European yeah. Space Agency after Brexit. How, have we got any skin left in the game? We are a second, a leading second tier player. Yes, we are in the ESA, but we're in some parts of it, just like we're still in the Galileo um, GPS type system, but we've we've been kicked out of the military aspect of, of, of Galileo. The UK has got more satellites than nearly every country in the world. It's about the fourth or fifth leading satellite country. It makes satellites. It's got the spaceport in Cornwall. It's building a new spaceport in uh, Sutherland in Scotland. Uh, it's got some of the leading technicians and scientists. Um, and it, it, it remains destined to remain a leading second-tier power. There are bigger players, Japan, India, um, Italy, probably France, definitely. But no, it, it's it's a player, sort of um, universal Britain. It's funny because while you speak, I sort of realise we don't read much about space. No, no. What's happened? When I mean, when I was young, there was space yeah. every page of the paper. It fell out of fashion, though, didn't it? Um, we got to the moon, we went back a couple of times, and everyone started saying, "What's the point? They keep bringing back the same rocks." So it kind of went out of fashion. And then I think what happened is very quietly. Over 50 years, this incredibly huge network of space apparatus has grown up and the commercial companies have grown up. And we are now beginning to realise, oh, because it's out of sight, out of mind. It is an integral part of everything we do now. But it's just happened gradually up there. I do think if the Americans pull it off and land a man and a woman, which is that they've said they're dedicated to a man and a woman and a person of colour, all walking on the moon, within a couple of years, I think that's going to reignite our interest. But do you think they'll do it? Yeah, I do. Um, last year, the first Artemis um, rocket went further than any rocket built for a crew has ever been, went right around the back of the moon and came back. Next year, they're going to put four people in it and do the same thing. It's a practice run, right around the back of the moon, all the way back. And then in 2026, they're going to do that and land to at least two of them and walk. And I, I think they will. It, it could slip to 27, sure. Could even slip to 28. But I think they'll probably do it in 26 if next year's test run goes okay. We can say in our lifetime. God willing. <laughs> <laughs> the thousands of satellites sent up by states and private companies have contributed to space debris. Mm. Have there been many hits or near misses up there? And could space debris actually be, well, knocked out of orbit towards us? There's a lot of space debris. It's, it's the one subject which, and this took me by surprise in the research, every space expert I spoke to said it's the main problem, space debris. And we've got 8,000 satellites there, 3,000 are defunct, uh, and plus 3,000 defunct. There's going to be at least 20,000 more satellites going up this decade. It's getting busy. There have been collisions. There have been, there have been these tests that we discussed of ballistic missiles hitting them. It's a problem. It's a problem which is going to get bigger, which is why, actually, it's a growth industry in cleaning the stuff up. But we can't clean it up faster than it's created. One of the ways of cleaning it up is you, you do, you, you grab hold of it and you throw it down into the atmosphere because they're small, you know, the pieces are mostly smallish and they, they burn up. You can also, on the big satellites, throw them up, way up, out of, out of orbit, uh, you know, towards geosynchronous orbit. You know. But is anybody doing that? Yes, but, but at, at the rate where more accumulates. But it's a huge growth industry. The Japanese are, are and the U European Space Agency are leading the charge to get rid of this stuff. There have been 
instances of satellites crashing into each other, which of course then creates more debris. But there isn't yet the, catas- the, the catastrophe depicted in the film um, Gravity, which was stolen, the idea, from uh, the Kessler uh, cascade effect, named after a NASA scientist, where one satellite hits another, hits another, hits another, until you, all you've got is a ring of debris around the world. That, thankfully, has not happened. What about the green potential of space? Are there any plans that would excite a climate scientist? There are plans, if we crack nuclear fusion, if AI cracks it, to de- get the helium-3, not helium-4, which we have lots of, helium-3 that's on the moon, and you can use it to create radiation-free nuclear power on Earth. And the Chinese scientists believe there is enough on the moon to for 10,000 years' worth of energy for the Earth. And then the theory, which has already been proven probable, of massive solar farms in space, miles long, beaming down 24-7, because then you can send it wherever you want. You can send it to developing countries and that can go feed into the grid 24 hours a day, you know, not just during the day. So there's massive potential. There's so many positives along with the medical experiments and the the 3D printing and all sorts of things, there's a lot of genuine positives which could have a massive, massive inroad uh, and and assistance in in combating climate change. Lots of positives in that answer. But do you think the planet's survival depends on our success in space? Nobody quite knows the future. (laughs) I I think it's worth betting on, yeah. Would anything match your excitement for the moon landing? If yes, what would that be? And can you see it happening in our lifetime? Leeds United getting promoted back to the Premier League would match that. <laughs> and I'm, I, th- I think I will see both those events. God willing, I live another 10 years. That's an amazing answer. because <laughs> People who know a lot about football will have a view. People who know a lot about <laughs> space will have a view. And there'll be a collision. I'm really, really grateful to you very, Thank you, very John. much. Really, very educative. It was so interesting to chat with Tim and learn about his life and career and his fascinating research into the politics and power concerning space. His book, The Future of Geography, is out now and you can find a link to it in our episode descriptions. Thank you for listening to Snowcast. Remember to follow and subscribe to the podcast on your platform of choice. And I'll be back next week with another episode. I hope you can join me then. Even on a budget, quality is non-negotiable. That's why Quince is the place to score high-end essentials at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Get your hands on buttery soft cashmere sweaters from just 60 bucks, Italian leather jackets, and so much more. And the best part about Quince? They exclusively partner with factories committed to safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Elevate your style without the elevated price tag with Quince. Go to Quince.com upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. 
And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. 